Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. All right. Um, I'm always interested in learning what people like to do for fun. Most of the time, I find that to be far more interesting than learning what people do for a living because many people are not at all passionate about their work. But if you want to see the light come on in people's eyes, ask them what they do for fun when they're away from work. If you were to ask me, I'd mention a handful of things. I have a lot of interest, but but either the first or second thing on the list would be the business of hunting elk. I hunt deer, I hunt birds, I hunt fish, uh, I, I hike, I camp. Uh, I fiddle with stringed instruments. I love to spend time with my wife and kids. But if, if you're just asking what is the, the, my favorite thing to do for just flat-out fun, it's chase an elk. The mere sight of an elk does something to me that no other beast on the planet does. Um, I don't know why, but it makes my heart shift gears every single time. So when fall hunting season rolls around, I start arranging my schedule and all of the social stuff in my life to give me maximum amount of time to head out into tall, steep country where I can stumble around and chase after elk. Most days when I do that, I've got a heavy pack on my shoulders and I'm going somewhere that sane human beings don't want to walk around. But I find that somehow that heavy burden on my back and uh, that heavy strain on my lungs and my legs and that cramp in my forearm that comes from carrying that chunk of iron that I drag around with me everywhere I go, somehow all that stuff together ends up kind of washing away some of the worries and the stresses that I have worked uh, myself into over the previous weeks or months. Most days, that's how it goes. I'll stumble around out there. I'll get back to the truck feeling like I'm barely alive, but I know I'm alive. And somehow my, my spirit, my heart is very well. There are some days in the field, however, that don't work like that. And they add some stress to my life instead of diminishing it. One of those days happened several years ago. My hunting partner uh, got to hunt on a day that I did not. And he was fortunate enough to harvest a big bull elk. I couldn't go that day because of an event at the church, and it was a Friday, and so um, I did our Friday thing, and it was an evening event, and as soon as the event was over, I ran back to my office and picked up the phone, and I called Bruce because I was just assuming that he hadn't killed anything that day, and so it meant that the next day we were going to leave at 3.30 in the morning or something and head off into the Great Bear Wilderness, and I needed to know exactly what time to be at his house, and I was rather eager to do it and rather regretting the fact that I didn't get to hunt that day and picked up the phone and said, Bruce, what time do I need to be at your house? And his response was, I did something plumb ridiculous today. I said, well, what'd you do? He said, I killed a bull. So after the appropriate congratulations and all of those things, I said, hey, wait a minute. You said it was plumb ridiculous. What'd you do? Well, I killed it in this basin, and he told me the name of it, and I realized that the next day was going to be a very bad day of my life. Yeah. See, uh, earlier that week, we had met for breakfast, and I was down in the back, and I said, Bruce, there is no way that I can that I can put a pack frame on this week. I don't think I can go. He said, just bring your lunch and something to drink. I got everything that we need. But on uh, Friday night, he said, "Uh, take some Advil because you're going to the woods tomorrow. And uh, the basin that he killed this bull in is a solid four, maybe four and a half miles straight up the side of a mountain. It is uphill the entire way there. And 
if you, if you haven't spent a lot of time in the mountains, here's what you need to know. Once you get to the top, you've done the easy half, okay? It's when you're coming back down the hill with, uh, with weight on your shoulders that your body is going to say hateful things to you. And so uh, four and a half miles into this basin, and the other little problem is that it's an absolute grizzly bear hole. They, they should call it a sanctuary because there is just a ridiculous number of grizzly bears in that area. And there's a mathematical equation that comes into play in a situation like this one. It goes like this. One dead elk plus any number of grizzly bears plus 24 hours of wait equals a very high probability of a hostile bear encounter. And that night, I fell asleep praying that God would intervene in our situation. I knew it was dangerous, and I knew that no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If God didn't intervene, we were walking into a dead elk with at least one grizzly bear upon it. Bruce had recruited a couple of young, strong 24-year-olds to go with us, one of whom was his son. And as we climbed the mountain that, that day, it was really tense. There was a fair amount of bear talk. There were also four large guns in the mix. I took the lead. Bruce brought up the rear. We put the two young guys between us, and we were all having eyes and ears peeled for bear sounds. Stopped for a number of breaks because of the kind of terrain that I told you we were in. The last one where we stopped was just a half a mile from the kill site. And when we got there, we had just gotten to the elevation where there was a fresh skiff of snow from the night before. And what we saw in that snow on the trail, headed toward the kill, was the unmistakable tracks of not one, but two grizzly bears, a sow and her young cub. And now we knew exactly what was going to happen. This was not going to go well. But, you see, my buddy Bruce uh, had killed a bull elk, and he, was, he just put it this way to me. I'm either getting my elk or I'm getting my tag, and that's the way the deal goes. So... We went walking up the trail, stopped there half mile, uh, took a break, and as we started putting our packs back on and ready to make the final push, I don't know how we all got jumbled up the way we did, but the two boys ended up out front, and I didn't argue with them about who got to be in the lead in this situation. Just the way the situation unfolded, we were, we were in the timber, and we, we that's Bruce, and uh, when when you came out of the timber, you came to this big open face, but it went this way. You were just walking across the trail, and you came to the edge of the mountain, and it literally did like this, this platform does, just poop like that. And there's this gigantic rock outcropping, a very narrow trail that you kind of had to hug, hug the, the wall as you went past it, and then you went across this, this steep face, and about 300 yards down, down the trail there was where Bruce had put the hammer to that bull. So as we got to the, to the rock outcropping, as we, we're, we're starting to feel the, the sun where we've been in the shade for hours, Justin's in the lead, and, and he gets there, and as he turns and he looks down the trail, he flinched hard, raised his gun, and took two steps back. And instantly, guns came up, pulses came up, blood pressure came up, and the volume and everyone's voices came up. Where is she? Where is she? And everybody's doing this, looking. And... I don't suppose it really matters because on flat ground, you still can't outrun a grizzly bear. But we were in country that was so steep that if you stepped off the trail, you had to kick in toeholds into the side of the mountain to stay there. 
And so we just felt totally and completely pinned down over one guy who drew a short breath and took two steps backwards. And as we're all barking at him, where is she, where is she? He said, it's a guy. And I'm thinking, guy, that that doesn't even fit in the picture because there were no pickups at the trailhead. Bruce was the last guy off the mountain the night before. There was nobody at the trailhead, no, no vehicle parked there when he came out. We were the first ones here this morning. It just didn't fit. So I said, what do you mean it's a guy? He said, it's a guy. And he's laying face down in the trail. So I pushed past Logan, and I pushed past Justin, and I got up there, and I, I peeked around the rock. And sure enough, about 30 yards up there, there's a guy laying face down in grizzly bear tracks in the snow. Logan said, what are we going to do? He said, well, let's hope he's asleep. But uh, there was no blood in the snow, so he hadn't been mauled by a grizzly bear. Uh, But his pack was over here, and his rifle was over there, and it looked like maybe he had fallen to his death down the mountain, which raised the question, how did he get all the way up there? Because we got a a relatively early start at it. So we we, we stood there talking while this man laid over there, and... uh, um, most people in that country carry a sidearm because of grizzly bears, so it's not a good idea to go to a, wake, uh, a sleeping man and shake him and wake him up. And so we, we were trying to figure out what to do. And I think Logan wanted to throw rocks at him. But um, um, again, with the sidearm, didn't seem like such a great idea. So instead, Logan had a cow call around his neck, and he blew it real loud. And nothing, not a twitch. Oh, we looked at each other, and he blew it again. Nothing. So I just yelled, hey! And there was a two-second pause, and then that guy goes from flat on his face to up on his knees going, eyeballs this big around. He says, man, you guys scared me to death. So the conversation uh, began in interesting fashion, and I just said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I was taking a nap. I said, you're laying in grizzly bear tracks. He goes, I saw that. Oh, um, hmm. He said, hey, um, you guys hunted this basin before? I said, well, this is my first time in. I knew where it was, but it was my first time hunting in there. And um, he said, well, my brother and I have killed four, gri- gri- four bull elk in the last three years here, and the grizzlies have taken three of them. Again, I said, you're lying in grizzly bear tracks. And uh, he just seemed rather unfazed by that, so I dropped it. I still don't get it. I've spent a lot of time in the woods. I've had my own share of eyeball-to-eyeball encounters with bears. I don't like them. I don't want any more of those. And I fail to understand how it is that any human being who understands just how dire a situation they're in could lay down and sleep and not wake up. To this day, I cannot understand how that situation happened. When we're sleeping, we need to be woken up. Good luck if you're the parents of the Purcell children. Bring dynamite. It's necessary. Because my kids, like yours, love to sleep. All of us do. All you have to do is uh, skim, uh, skim through Facebook uh, each day, and you'll find all of the insomniacs, right? Because anybody who can't sleep at 3 in the morning 
Praise a little bit and Facebook's a lot. That's the way that it goes. And you'll see the people saying, why can't I sleep? It's on there. We all love sleep. We hate to be woken up. But sometimes the situation merits being shaken out of our slumber. We've been reading Jesus' letters to the churches of the eastern cities of ancient Turkey. And today we're going to read the letter to the church in a city called Sardis. To the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write... These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They'll walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who's victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels." Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. If you've been reading these letters with us, you may have observed a pattern in them. In the four previous letters that we've studied together, Jesus started out by pointing out some good thing that he was able to observe in each of the churches, complimenting them. Each one of those churches had some number of good things going for them that Jesus wanted to make sure that that they knew, he knew, and he wanted to express some approval and some of that some of that older brother kind of a pat on the back kind of stuff that, that helps us all be encouraged to continue to do what's good and right. Each one of the churches got to experience those things until we get to the church at Sardis. When it came to Sardis, Jesus started out instead with this very harsh and shocking accusation. He said, I see your actions. He'd said that to the church the week before. He said, I see your actions. And he went on to tell about all these great things that they were doing. To the church at Sardis, he says, I see your actions. In fact, I see right through your actions because you're phony as can be. You have this reputation for being alive, but you are dead, spiritually dead. Great letter, huh? Can you imagine what it was like to be the church in Sardis? You'd heard about the church in Ephesus, the church in Pergamon, the church in Thyatira. You'd heard that they'd all gotten letters. Yeah, there'd been some words of, of correction in there, but, but they'd all got the attaboy and attagirl from Jesus. Church at Sardis is waiting for their letter to come. The, the, the pastor gets up that morning and says, I've, I've got it. It came from Jesus. You ready to hear what it has to say? Let's just imagine that we are the church at Sardis for a moment, would you? Just just imagine that we're gathered here on a regular Sunday morning when a, a respected person, we'll say Harold Beggs, comes to the front and says, I have a message, it's from Jesus. It really is, no joke here, this is a message from Jesus. I take the letter out of the envelope, I begin to read it, and it says, Dear First Naz, it's me, Jesus. Remember me? I'm the one who sent you the Holy Spirit in all his fullness so that you'll have absolutely everything that you need to be able to live faithfully for me in this life. I've sent a messenger to you with this letter because there's something I want you to know, so I'll just say it. You are dead. 
You do enough religious stuff that people think you're sort of alive, but you're dead, dead where you stand. You got started well. There, there once was life, but now you're fading out. You haven't finished what I sent you to do. I sent you to make disciples in this valley, but you haven't finished it. You've dropped the ball. You failed to finish the mission. You're dead. Maybe if you're lucky, instead of dead, you've just got a really bad coma, and, and there's something maybe in there that might be able to be stirred back to life one day, but you better get on it right now, because if you don't, even that which you have is going to slip away from you, and you are going to be dead in your sins. A commission, do you remember the mission? It was not a suggestion. It was a job you were supposed to complete, so finish it. Wake up. Do your job. Before you waste away to the place that you can't even recognize me when I come to you. That would be the worst mail call ever. Be the worst mail call ever. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have Jesus tell you that your church is dead? But Jesus did offer them that one little glimmer of hope. He said, use some kind of coma kind of language, said a little bit of life left. Why don't you work on that that you have? But the church in Sardis was in trouble and while I've said about a number of the other churches in Revelation, boy, doesn't that sound like a church you'd want to be a part of? That's a church I'd want to be a part of. I do not want to be a part of the church in Sardis. Never have, never will. As I read and reread that letter over the past two weeks, a thought came to mind about how I should go about preaching it today. I dismissed it at first, but it kept coming back to me, so it charted the course for me today. I've been taught and conditioned as a preacher, uh, like all of my colleagues, that we're to look at every Bible passage to find something that is true, but is, is still, at this point, lacking in me, in you, or in us together as a congregation. We're then supposed to highlight that issue's importance, and then we're supposed to ask the Holy Spirit to show us how to change. And if the passage reveals consequences or warnings, preachers are supposed to jump all over that stuff and and use it to produce this real sense of urgency for immediate change on your parts. Almost all Christian preaching follows this model, almost all of mine included. But I've thought and prayed about this letter and its meaning and message to our church. And that is not the kind of message that I am bringing to you today because I don't think it would be at all appropriate. I have good news for our church today. We are not the church at Sardis. We are not dead. We are very much alive. When our district superintendent called me over three years ago to ask me to consider the possibility of interviewing with this church's board, he also sent me some reading material. It was a 71-page formal professional assessment of this church's health conducted by the leading group in the world, the, the, the real church health experts. I read through it, every single word, every single page, all 71 pages, and it troubled me. I called the district superintendent back. And he, because I had some questions and some comments, and he referred me to the man who performed the assessment. That guy talked with me for about an hour, and he gave me great detail concerning the time that he spent with you as a congregation. The interview, he interviewed 84 people in this congregation ages 15 and older. 
He, he took pictures of snags in the carpet. I've got it all. When I met with the board, I heard the same things that I heard from the district superintendent and that I heard from the head of new church specialties. And I kept hearing this one sentence that was repeated over and over, and it was a sentence that I didn't want to hear. And then as I got to know some of you, I found out that that same sentence had been pronounced over this church in a public meeting. It kept saying that if this church didn't wake up, it would close its doors in five years because it would be dead. I did not very much enjoy reading that report. For those of you who are a part of this congregation then and still are today, uh, I readily admit that I cannot imagine what it must have been like if you hear somebody say that about your church. Some of you have invested decades of your life and hundreds of thousands of dollars in generous giving toward this church and its ministries. I wonder, as you listen that day, if maybe it didn't feel like an accusation against you. Or maybe it came across like you were getting some kind of a terminal diagnosis, like, like a doctor telling you you had brain cancer. Or, or maybe it, you, you just felt like, yeah, those guys don't know what they're talking about. Because maybe it made you angry or you felt like you'd been treated unfairly. I can't imagine what it must have been like to hear that. I read that report again this week. I laid it beside the letter to the church at Sardis, and the letter looked incredibly similar to the report. And as I wondered what that congregation must have felt when they received Jesus' letter, I thought about all of you sitting in this very sanctuary, listening to a professional tell you that your time was almost up, and that your odds weren't good. And it made me hurt for you, but I'm pleased to tell you today that we are not the church at Sardis. You want to know what happened in the church at Sardis? They didn't wake up. Jesus himself wrote them a personal letter and said, there's a little bit of life left. Why don't you fan that into flame? Wake up. But they didn't. And Jesus, as it turns out, was right. That church died, and it no longer exists. As a matter of fact, the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, not one of those churches heeded the message. And not one of them exists this day. Turkey, in the first century, was the center of Christianity. Less than 1% of people in Turkey today know the Lord Jesus Christ. Many have never heard his name. The church at Sardis received a personal letter from Jesus. It received a sharp warning from him that could not be mistaken for anything else. But they didn't listen. So their church withered and died. The church at Sardis has passed into history, and it failed to complete the mission that Jesus gave to all of his followers. But today, I stand before you for a very different purpose than I do on most Sundays. Instead of telling you what you need to do, in addition to all the other things that you've done, instead of telling you about how you need to grow because you haven't grown up enough yet, instead of saying your hearts need to be more tender to the Spirit's voice, today, I just want to tell you how proud of Jesus and our Heavenly Father are, and I know it deep in my heart. 
I want to tell you how proud of you I am as one of your pastors. Assessing and and pronouncing a church's death is probably only accurately and appropriately done by Jesus himself, but I'll tell you what, I'm confident in my ability to recognize a living church, and you guys are exactly that. You're live, living, lively church that is on the march in this world. Perfect? No, of course not. But you're actively growing Developing as Jesus would want you to. We put a bunch of words all over the foyer out there. Connect, grow, serve. I watch you do it week after week after week after week. I watch each week as you connect with God in worship. And it's beautiful. I listen to the laughter and the chatter and the obvious sounds of love and relationship among people who've known each other and and, and grown to, to love and support one another in this place. And it's beautiful in my ears and it is in the ears of God too. I watch. We have new people who walk in here as our guests every single week and I watch the way that you get your arms around them and you make it feel like this is their church too. Proud of you. You're doing what Jesus would want you to do. The connect thing, it's happening here. Our church board has prayed intently that you would develop, every one of you, a hunger and a thirst for God's word. And I've seen it in women's Bible study groups and discipleship classes for men and and mixed groups that, that I've taught. I've seen that thirst and watched you grow in your faith as you've taken the responsibility for watering your own souls. I have lost count of how many people have said to me, Pastor, until recently, I have never had a consistent time of fellowship with the Lord on a daily basis. That whole devotion thing just felt like law and burden, and I, and I felt like a failure, and I felt a million miles from God, but I've lost count of how many people have said to me, but not anymore, because every single day, it's me and the Lord in his word. I'm growing. It's a beautiful thing. There's a brand new adult Sunday school class. Listen, you got to get this, and you got to feel the power of this. Sunday school is dying everywhere in America, going away fast. We started a new adult Sunday school class here just uh, oh, a couple months ago, and its present rate of growth, by the end of this year, it will be the largest class that we have here. And um, it's all because there's a hunger and a thirst for God's Word. And as people begin to feast on it, funny thing, it makes you all the more hungry. And so they're continuing to grow in their faith. It's a beautiful thing. Connect. You're doing it. Grow. You're doing it. And when it comes to serving, it's become one of the chief components of this church's identity. If you ask anybody who attends this church, they'll tell you that. If you uh, survey a bit about our reputation in this valley, you'll hear the same. Homes of Hope needs our help with a school supply and backpack drive each year, and they get it. All they have to do is ask. Family Promise needs dozens and dozens of volunteers, and we supply them. The poor and disadvantaged people in our community need food and clothes and friendship and hope, and you give it in abundant measure. Our youth ministry staff, fully staffed. Children's, uh, children's ministry, we always need more workers, but do you know what happens when the time comes? You step up and you meet the need. Blows me away. Special events, you guys hit the ball out of the park. 
Harvest heyday, Easter, dinners at the Rock, all done very well. Our Sunday school classes have teachers. Our production team upstairs does their jobs. They they, they show up hours before church every single week. Committee members here do more than get their name on a list. They do their work. When they come to the board, they tell us about what they've been doing. And our coffee guys out there, can we have a hand for our coffee guys? Yeah, absolutely. It's just a warm welcome in Jesus' name, and, uh, and I really appreciate, appreciate the way that they serve us. But the way that all of you have come to, to, to see life as a chance to help somebody else makes my heart very proud. I should probably mention the worship team, too. Lisa, you and your group, you, you, set, you set the stage for the Holy Spirit to be able to come and be heard. You help people get to the place where they're connected so that they can then grow by hearing what it teach each week. They leave here and serve. And you and your worship team help us get there. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Yep. So what I'm trying to say this morning really comes down to just a small handful of things. Number one, we are a church that got a wake-up call. But we heeded it. And so we're alive. We're a church that is actively pursuing the fulfillment of its mission to make more disciples for Jesus. Number three, uh, we have some weak spots, but we are neither comatose nor are we dying. Every time I meet with other pastors from this community, they tell me that they are hearing great things about what is happening in our fellowship. And finally, I just want to say this. I'm thankful that I get to be one of your pastors. Many of my colleagues in ministry get calls to churches that have been given death notices to. Many of those pastors work every bit as hard as I do. They pray as much or more. They plan. They preach. They do everything within their power, but their congregations remain asleep, bringing about their own demise. It's like laying face down in grizzly bear tracks being unfazed by it, but not you. Long time ago, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches, and he ended each one of them the same way. Let those who have ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'm so very glad that you have ears to hear, and you have listened to what the Spirit has said to this church. And because of it, You've taken the good things that remained here, foundations laid by by your hard work and those of your good pastors before us. And you've taken those things and strengthened them. And this church has roared back to life. And I'm so very, very proud of you. So as you leave today, I want to send you with words of blessing from your God and from your pastor. Feel good about your church. This is a church that's worth feeling good about. Tell your friends and neighbors that you go to a church that's alive, not one of the dead kind. Tell them you go to a church that you're glad to be a part of, and one that God is blessing because of its obedience to the mission. And know this, I love you with the love of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Stand with me, please. Father, there are some days when uh, the work is hard, and uh, 
There's some days when we don't see enough fruit on the vine. And the truth is, your spirit is blowing a fresh wind through this place. We sense you here every time the doors are open. We want to ask you for more of what you've already given us. Life, real God kind of life that transforms human lives from broken and sinful into something that inspires hope in our neighbors. Lord, thank you that we get to serve. Thank you that we get to grow. Thank you that we get to connect with you. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for allowing me the privilege to be the pastor at Lewiston First Church of the Nazarene. Lord, please use us. Please make us your chosen vessel for operating in this valley. We'll serve more if you give us more opportunities. We'll grow more if you pour out your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We'll connect and stay connected with you. We'll connect with as many people as you send to us. We'll get our arms around them. We promise we will. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for shaking us from our slumber. Thank you for being our God. Keeping all your promises to us. In your name we pray. Amen. May you know the grace and the peace of our Lord this day. Amen.